Say to them, this is what the Lord says. When people fall down, do they not get up? When someone turns away, do they not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, What have I done? Each pursues their own course, like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Jeremiah 8, 4-7. Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you, Fred. Bless you. As the kids make their way downstairs, I want to share with you something that happened to me again just this past Saturday. It's a recurring dream that I have. It's the dream where I find myself in a situation where for somehow, for some reason, I'm supposed to know exactly what I'm doing. But in real life, I have no idea how to do what I'm supposed to be doing in this dream, in this situation. Maybe you've had a dream similar to it. I'll give you two examples of what this dream is like for me, this recurring dream. In one common scenario, I'm on stage with the Irish rock band U2. (laughs) I'm not making this up. It's pathetic. I know. I dream a lot about being on stage with you too. But in this dream, I find that I am playing the electric guitar, or I'm even worse, I'm behind the drum kit. And I don't really play electric guitar. I don't understand pedals and effects. And I certainly don't understand how their guitarist does it. And here I am supposing, like I'm supposed to know how to do this. Or even worse, I'm behind the drum kit. And at best, I can kind of do a kind of 4-4 kind of beat. But that's it. And that's not going to cut it for a lot of U2 songs. But here I am. I'm behind the kit. And the song's about to start. In just a moment, it's going to become painfully obvious to the band, but also to the thousands of fans that are in the room that I don't know what I'm doing. And then I wake up and I go, oh, I didn't have to know what I was doing. Praise the Lord. But last Saturday's dream was different. It was kind of the same situation, but, but not. Last Saturday, I dreamt that I won a sailboat. And I found myself on this boat realizing that I had no idea about nautical navigation. I didn't know how to tie knots. I don't know how to hoist a sail. I certainly don't know how to back it out of the driveway, so to speak, right? (laughs) Out of the dock and, and get going. And again, I woke up with great relief. Praise the Lord. I don't need to know how to do this, even though in the dream, it's, I'm supposed to know how to do this. And if this dream was to keep going, like if, if, if I didn't wake up, it would turn into a nightmare because very quickly it would become apparent I don't know what I'm doing and the legions of fans would start booing if I'm on the stage with the band and I would suffer the consequences of poor musicianship. Or if I crashed the sailboat into a yacht trying to back out of the driveway, so to speak, 
whose owner will have much more insurance and better lawyers than I will, and I suffer the consequences of poor sailing. I know this is what would happen if I was to continue sleeping, but thankfully I wake up. Because a musician should know their art. A musician should know their instrument and play it well. And a sailor should know how to steer a boat, how to sail a sailboat. And if you are an Israelite, you should know the character and the requirements of God. Now, the last two weeks, we've been working through our Echoes of Easter sermon series, looking back on Israel's scriptures to see how the resurrected life is a thread that actually runs through the Old Testament. It's pointing forward to something that's coming. And we've seen this in the scriptures that point to God as the father of steadfast love. Despite our nature to turn away, he continues to draw near to us. And we've seen this through scriptures that point to God as the father of the orphan and the widow. All of us are poor and in need, and only in God do we find the provider and the giver of true life. And all through scripture and in these sermons, we see a God who indeed draws near, who moves close to us, that we may know him better and draw close to him. That's who he is. That's the character of God. That's good news. But think for a moment what this means. Here is God whose heart is to draw near to his creation. And he does so with the understanding that at some point, and for all of us at some point, be it the Israelites or his people or you or I, we will walk away from him. At some point we do turn away, at least a little bit, Sometimes, with long-lasting effect. And we can get some idea of what this might feel like if we ever offer fellowship to somebody, only to see it rejected. We get a sense of what this is like. Or a rift develops between two long-time friends and ends up with one walking away. Or when a parent sees a daughter or a son stray from the family, we suffer in these things. Imagine now the God of the universe, the father of steadfast love, seeing his creation, who, us who he's formed with his hands, turn away and walk away. And there's another title that we could give him, the father who suffers. Our passage today is from the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He was a reluctant prophet who had seen where Judah's idolatry would lead her to the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and her people taken into exile, inevitably by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Far worse, however, is the divide that sin will place between the people and God. And the Lord has given Jeremiah just a few words to speak about it. And the words are words of lament and of sadness and of punishment and of suffering. Indeed, God's voice and Jeremiah's voice are sometimes hard to tell apart. Take Jeremiah 9 verse 1. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. It's Jeremiah's voice, but we could certainly imagine the Lord speaking this in response to seeing his people choose sin over himself. 
And I think that's important to remember when we hear these hard words of punishment come from the Lord, and there are plenty of words that come. It's important to remember the heart of God's character. Even in the following chapter from this passage, we are reminded of it. The Lord says, but let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these, in these I delight, declares the Lord. See, God does not delight in seeing sin take us down. He is never smug about it. He's never rubbing his hands with glee, just waiting to throw the first volley of of fire and brimstone. Rather, I believe it is easier to imagine God speaking the passage that we heard Fred read so beautifully with tears rather than with gritted teeth, right? You see, the judgment that Judah is about to receive comes of their own choice. God isn't the slighted kid in the sandbox who decides to squish some ants to vent his anger. He is making real what Judah has already chosen, Musician and author Michael Card expresses this well in his book, A Sacred Sorrow. And I want to read a quick excerpt of that. This is what Michael Card writes. By handing over Jerusalem to the enemy, God, who is so ruthlessly committed to incarnating the truth, was only making visible the truth that had been concealed for so long. Jerusalem had lost her true glory long before Nebuchadnezzar showed up outside her walls. The desolation of the temple had slowly happened over the centuries as both priests and people became satisfied with offering only their prescribed sacrifices and no longer themselves. Listen to this. The desolation of the temple had slowly happened when personal sin was at first tolerated and then overlooked and finally woven into a way of life. The true destruction of the temple came at precisely the point when it became more a club for the religious elite and less the house of prayer for the poor that God had set it aside to be. And by handing the city over to the Babylonians, and I love this line, and we're going to come back to this line. Listen to this. By handing the city over to the Babylonians, God was only actualizing, making visible, infleshing what was already true. Bit of a made-up word there. By handing the city over to the Babylonians, God was only actualizing, making visible, infleshing what was already true. Now its barrenness was painfully plain to see. In the end, God was neither their enemy nor their judge because in handing them over, he had only pronounced the sentence they had passed upon themselves long before. Oftentimes, Jeremiah and the Lord's voice sound so much like each other, but there's one place where Jeremiah differs from the voice of the Lord. Oh, that I had in the desert, Jeremiah says, a lodging place for travelers, so that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. Jeremiah wept for Judah. He loved his tribe. These are his people. But he also was revulsed by their sin and wanted to distance himself from it. God the Father is also revulsed by our sin. 
but he chooses to get close. And he chooses to suffer for it with us. And again, we hear the suffering of God in the words of our passage spoken this morning. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. When people fall down, do they not get up? When someone turns away, do they not return? Why have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? Judah has altogether rejected the wonderful, awesome, and powerful reality of God in their midst and instead embraced the foolishness of idolatry. By trusting in their own strength or the strength of other nations and their gods, they have set themselves up to be knocked down. But the funny thing is, is that what God has set up for us is not rocket science. The heart of God's law is actually fairly common sense stuff. Just look at the Ten Commandments. Now, we've mentioned memorizing Scripture the last two Sundays a little bit. Here's a great place to start. Start with the Ten Commandments. Because I'll bet that many a staunch atheist could agree that living by the Ten Commandments is a wise and good thing to do. Murder, lying, adultery, these are bad things that always lead to worse things, just to name a few of them. So go home today and read through them in Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5. There's your homework, church. I believe this is what God is alluding to through Jeremiah. There is a common sense element to following God. It should be a natural thing to do. You fall down, you get back up. You find you're going the wrong way, turn around, go the right way. And it seems like all of God's creation knows this, except us. God goes on to say, even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. There's something in them that just knows this is where we go. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Unlike a silly dream where we wake up from a dire situation and we go, whew, we didn't need to know how to do that. Praise the Lord. Judah is in a nightmare That should never have happened because they should know. They should know the character of God and his requirements. What it means to live by his reign, his rule, and to keep his commandments. Earlier we read they cling to deceit. They refuse to return. And rather than turn from sin, Judah embraces it, clings to it. And again, just as we heard in a sacred sorrow, personal sin was at first tolerated and then it was overlooked And finally, woven into a way of life. Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? I believe the Father suffers because he knows where this goes. And where it goes is separation from himself. They choose to turn away. They choose to walk away. And it sounds bleak, and it is bleak. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, what have I done? Because this is what happens when sin is tolerated and then overlooked and then woven into a way of life. We forget how to repent. We don't see a need for it. We don't see a need for God in this way. And now I I can't speak in any of your lives as to where you are in terms of keeping things real with God, in terms of searching your hearts and turning away from these things and sharing them with them. 
But sometimes I fear, sometimes I fear that we, we don't do it well anymore. We are steeped in a culture that belts out slogans like, no regrets, and it's all good, when clearly we do have regrets. And quite frankly, all is not good. But I was alerted to this in my own life a few months ago when in conversation with some friends, the topic of repentance came up. And through this conversation, it occurred to me that in the prayer life that Kate and I were cultivating with our kids, we rarely, rarely asked the Lord to search our hearts for the ways that we had wronged him. Nor did we reflect on our day to see what we needed to ask for in terms of forgiveness. In our family prayer time, or in the prayer time between Kate and I, I realized that we were quick to say, thank you. We were quick to say who Jesus was, to declare what he's done. We were quick to ask for things. We were really good at that. We were quick to say, I love you. And those are all important things to incorporate in our prayer life. But something was missing. Rarely did I or we ever ask for forgiveness. And why is that? Am I so secure in my faultless walk with the Lord that I never see a time that I need to humble myself in reverence and and humility and confess where I've walked my own path? And here's the thing. Yeah, I think the answer is sometimes I am a little bit, especially compared to this person over here or, or that person over there. Please note, I didn't actually point to anybody in particular. Okay. After all, what's the worry? God is a God of steadfast love. We sing about it all the time. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. What's the big deal? Sin is a big deal. Now, I don't doubt my salvation in God. I've received the grace Given me through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, I have accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I have been baptized. I know that the Holy Spirit resides in me. I hold to that. I know that the power of sin has been broken over my life. And to deny that would deny what Jesus has done. I really believe the only power that sin has over me now is the power that I give it. Because the Spirit's within me, just like the Spirit's within you who have given your lives to Jesus. We have to believe that power of sin is broken. The only power now that it has is the power that I give it. But I also know that I walk a life in Christ that is still within earshot of a million voices that say, no, 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 this is the way. Walk this way. Voices that say, no, keep your faith. That's fine. Keep your faith, but just hold on to this one little sin over here. You don't have to let that go. It's a fine line, I know, but you can do it. Daniel, keep your faith, but just hold on to this little bit of lust over here. Hold on to this little bit of bitterness over here. You don't have to let that go. That's okay. And we try walking a life like that. And we see what happens. Some of us live a life like that. and It gets us nowhere fast. The trajectory of our walk starts to deviate just a little bit from Jesus, but sometimes just a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, and suddenly we find we're walking just the opposite direction. I've seen it happen, and it is heartbreaking. Sin is a big deal. Judah's sin was a big deal. 
You want to know what we're talking about when we talk about Judah's sin? Let's point to somebody else for a little while. This is fun. Previously in chapter 7, we read this. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command nor did it enter my mind, says the Lord. Judah was so far gone that they were committing the vilest offenses to the most innocent of victims. Now I hear the argument that comes. Daniel, can we talk for a moment? There's a slight difference between maybe ogling my neighbor's spouse once in a while than throwing a kid in a cauldron. Yes, I agree. So we start putting together sin lists that have differing degrees of defilement. This sin is this bad, this sin is this bad, and this sin is only this bad. But when we start to do this, my fear is that the temptation is to look at it and say, you know what, it's not so bad to go up here. Just, just don't go up here. Maybe here, but don't go up here. That's not where we go. And the concern with this, and I'll speak for myself, the concern with this is that if I go to here, it's only that much easier to put the bar up here next time or to put the bar up here next time. And as I get older... I realize that there are way less things that make me blush anymore. And there are way less things that make me queasy or uncomfortable. And that, to me, is a warning sign. To lose the ability to be revulsed by sin is to lose our humanity. Sin is a big deal that we suffer the consequences of, as Judah did. But so does God. God is in the midst of our suffering. On behalf of the sinner and the one who experiences the consequences of that sin, stepping into our suffering by enduring it himself. And this is horrifically but brilliantly made clear in the account of Eli Wiesel. I think I said that right. Wiesel? I was talking to Kate today. How do you pronounce Wiesel? 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 It's a German name. In an article from Christianity Today, it was argued that God indeed is a suffering God. Otherwise, how could he be a loving God? And the following is from that article. Eli Wiesel, Jewish survivor of the Holocaust, never shrinks from saying that the opposite of love is not hatred, but indifference. If God were indifferent, he could not love. And this is made plain in Wiesel's story about the hanging of two Jewish men and a youth in a Nazi concentration camp. All the prisoners, Wiesel included, were paraded before the gallows to witness this horrifying spectacle. And Wiesel writes this, The men died quickly, but the death throes of the youth lasted for half an hour. Where is God? Where is he? Someone asked behind me. And as the youth still hung in torment in the noose after a long time, I heard the man call again, where is God? 
And I heard a voice in myself answer, where is God? He is here. He is hanging there on the gallows. God is our heavenly father who suffers. He suffers for the child hanging on the gallows. He suffers for the sin of the person that put that child in the noose. And he suffers for the sin that we find in our, our, ourselves in today. He suffers because he loves us. And that is astounding. What kind of God would he be if he were not able to truly endure what we endure? We have a God who feels and loves and passes that on to his creation. What a shame it is when we lose that ability to feel and to love. Sin had overtaken the people of Judah to such a degree that they didn't even think about it. I have listened attentively, God says, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, what have I done? Each pursues their own course, like a horse charging into battle. And again, when we lose the revulsion for our sin, we stop asking the question, what have I done? Where have I sinned? And when we stop including, forgive me, Lord, in our prayers, we have lost sight of the gravity of sin, but also the one who suffers for our sin. And yet, within this verse is very good news. The good news of this passage is in the first four words of verse six. I have listened attentively. I have listened attentively. And maybe we get nervous for a moment because we think, "Uh uh-oh, this is past tense. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe God's done listening attentively. Maybe we lost our our chance, but I believe he is always listening. There's a wonderful psalm, Psalm 107, that is set after the terrible events that Jeremiah prophesied about. What has happened to the exiles? Where are they now? And here's how it starts. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. And it gets better. It goes on to describe groups of exiles, some who wandered in the desert wastelands, some who sat in darkness in the deepest gloom, some who became fools through their rebellious ways. But for every group, there is a verse that says this, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. It gets repeated over and over and over. See, we think modern Christian songs are the ones where the verses just get repeated over and over and over. Happened in the Psalms. It's biblical. But much more important than that, God is always listening. And are we surprised? Remember, what is God's character? I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. The father who suffers is one who listens to hear his creation repent. The voice that laments this suffers because the words of repentance are not heard, but he listens for it. And what a beautiful picture that is, God leaning in. Dare I say, hoping to hear. Does God hope? Hoping for the words of repentance to come. 
And the echoes of Easter are heard in the words of Jeremiah when we come to chapter 33, much later on. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. And in those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. The father who suffers identified with his creation so much that he became a part of it. And in time, this righteous branch from David's line would come to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And to borrow from our quote earlier in A Sacred Sorrow, in Christ, God was only actualizing, making visible, infleshing what was already true his presence with us. Jesus was also a weeping prophet. Isn't it interesting that he was once mistaken for Jeremiah? It's in Matthew chapter 16. There's some more homework. Look it up. In the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Luke records him weeping over the people of the city. So many, so close to the truth, and yet in their sin, so many unable to see him for who he was. The father who suffers is made known through his suffering son, our righteous savior, Jesus, who knows the suffering of your sin and he calls us to repent for his kingdom, the reign of God in our lives is at hand. And what will our response be? There's no clearer application in this passage that I see than to repent. To repent of the thoughts and the words and the deeds that we know that we have committed against the Lord. And I want to offer us us a chance to take the time to do so. And if this feels a little heavy, it is. And that's okay. Because we wake up from the dream and suddenly realize, no, wait, we really should know how to do that. We really should know the requirements of the Lord. Sin is a big deal that Christ paid a big price for. Yet God's character is not to stand over us and say, now I did this, now you owe me. But rather, he spreads his arms out wide and he says, I have provided a life for you that is free from the shackles of sin. Won't you take part in that with me? And the choice is ours. The choice is always ours. What love of the Father to give freedom to his creation. To give freedom to walk away from his son. To give freedom even to crucify him. To have him suffer at our hand. And yet to hear him plead for our forgiveness. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. So as the team comes on up, here's what I would like to do. True repentance isn't just wanting to get over the bad feelings of what we've done. It's a place to start. But true repentance is to actually really turn away from what we've done. And realizing that the path that God offers us, as rough as it might be, God never offers an easy path. But the path that God offers us is a path that is free from sin, that hinders our relationship with Him. So what I want to ask us to do this morning is as 
Some of the team plays a song. It's not a song that we're going to necessarily sing to, although you'll know the words. But in this time, I want to invite us to take a moment to just come before the Lord quietly, search our hearts, have him search our hearts, and reveal to us where it is we need to repent. Now, it's not the easiest thing in the world to say, okay, church, now let everybody be contrite. Go. (laughs) I get that. It's the same thing when we come in the doors and if we're in a bad space, okay, let's sing this really happy song. (laughs) Okay. But for some of you here this morning, some of you have been waiting for this. Maybe all week or all month or all year. And so I want to provide a space now for us to do this. And here's the thing. If you've been walking away from God, if you have been walking in a way that's a thousand steps away from him, as someone just shared with me recently, it's only one step to turn back. Because his presence is right there. He's with you the whole time. And take hope that no matter what sin by thought, word, or deed that we have succumbed to, our God is the Father who gladly suffers for it and is always listening and leaning in, waiting to hear our cry and ready to deliver us from our distress. So now in this moment, I want to invite us to do that. And in just a moment, our kids are going to come roaring up, and that's okay. That's all right. We're going to hear them come in. That's okay. We're not going to worry about that. I invite you, as our Sunday school teachers teach us, bow your heads, close your eyes, and just take some time to come before the Lord and say, Lord, reveal to me where is it that I need to repent. And to offer that up to him. And we experience his forgiveness. And then we go and we make that a part of our everyday life. Let's make space for that now while I pray. God who suffers, you do so with a purpose. You do so, Lord, to bring us close to you. Because you are not unfeeling, you are not distant. You are not silent, but you draw close to bring us to you. Lord, when we walk away, sometimes when we run, I thank you that your presence is never far. No matter how far we go, we turn with one step and there you are. Lord, would you reveal to each and every one of us now where it is we need to repent and say, Lord, forgive me. I am sorry. Help me to turn away. By your spirit, would you touch every heart here this morning? My heart. Let not this time pass by in vain, Lord God. Thank you, Lord.